Welcome to the Cumberland River Compact's River Talks podcast. By listening, you are becoming a part of our River Talks community. We're so excited to have you. River Talks are recorded live in Nashville, Tennessee at the Cumberland River Compact's River Center. Today we'll hear from Dr. Emily Stutzman from Lipscomb University's Institute for Sustainable Practice. Her work is at the intersection of people and land as a social scientist of natural resources and agriculture. She will be exploring the social science around the phenomenon of climate science denial. The Cumberland River Compact has worked in climate adaptation and resilience for over 20 years in Middle Tennessee. So Dr. Stutzman's work on understanding the sociology, psychology, and media studies that relate to climate science and the conversations we have is an extremely valuable perspective. We hope you enjoy hearing from Dr. Emily Stutzman. Thoughts and feelings do to you. 
So one of the phrases that it works against meta thinking is the phrase, well, I just don't understand how anybody, anybody who starts a sentence that way is not setting themselves up to actually understand why someone else might think something different. So meta thinking, we're thinking about our own thinking. I work with college students primarily. Um, this is a really important practice to develop, especially as, as people are mature and as young adults are growing up. Uh, next slide, please. So we're gonna watch a quick video um, that talks, that addresses this question of why some people don't believe in climate science, or don't, don't accept climate science, and why some people do. And uh, there's a lot that happens in this video, a lot of sociological concepts, a lot of uh, sociology, and psychology as well. Um, so as you're watching this video, uh, be thinking about the ways that you might fit into groups that, that accept or don't accept climate science. <laughs> but what it does a really good job of explaining is the ways that our brain is designed, has been designed and has come to exist over the course of human evolution to respond to threats. So our brain is designed to respond to the kind, a certain set of kinds of threats. We respond to threats most readily, threats that are personal, those that affect us individually, threats that are, um, that are abrupt when change is happening quickly. We can see a difference in a short period of time, an abrupt change. Uh, we respond threats to what we believe to be immoral or indecent. Um, threats that having a component of good people do this and bad people do this other thing. And threats that are happening now. So uh, those numbers that he was describing of what, uh, what the number of people that believe that climate change is happening now, the number of people that believe that climate change will affect them, those numbers are rising year to year. And one of the main explanations for why those numbers are rising is that more and more people are seeing the effects in their lifetime. And can, um, can anybody think of an effect that you've seen as a result of either environmental damage or climate change that's happened in your lifetime? Think about it for a minute. Talk about, if you talk to some scuba, um, the scuba community is really concerned about the effects on coral reefs, on the effect of um, ocean changes in the ocean on coral reef because scuba divers who started scuba diving several decades ago and are still scuba diving now have watched this transition in the course of their lifetime. Human lifetimes are relatively short. They're pretty good for mammals of our size, but they're, uh, they're very short in terms of atmospheric or, you know, or, or wide-scale geographic changes. So, um, challenges, how do we overcome to understand and respond to climate change? It really does take social, like a social movement to understand and fight against some of our power brain works. Um, it also can help you understand maybe why you believe what you believe about climate change. What you think about climate change is often, well, and this is, this is born out of research, what people think about climate change is a result of their social location. It's a result of their political affiliation, their education, gender, race, socioeconomic group. All of these things that make us as individuals who we are 
Sociology as a discipline is, um, takes the perspective that humans are not making individual choices, but we are making choices based on the options that are given to us by the socialization factors that happen as a result of many different groups that we are a part of. In fact, our individuality is a function of our membership in groups. So here's a, 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 um, a set of social location uh, variables. It's why we see that most of the US population is somewhere on a spectrum, not of believers and alarmists. There, I, I'll use the phrase uh, climate denial in my, uh, in my, the title of my talk somewhat provocatively, because the, the majority of people do not fall into um, to the category of like uh, alarm, so, uh, climate change alarmists or climate change skeptics and deniers. The majority of people in the U.S. fall somewhere in the middle. Um, there is a uh, report called SASE that the Yale Climate Change Communication Organization um, puts out and updates. And what they found is these six Americas, these six groups that people fall into on the spectrum from alarmed to dismissive. So the 22% of um, the people who are alarmed about climate change believe that, or who are certain that global warming is happening, is human-caused harmful, they strongly support climate change policies, most likely to engage in political activism. Um, that might include some people in the room, the people who show up at events like River Talks, right, and across, across our community, um, are often people who are engaged and uh, might fall into this alarmed category. The, on the other end of the spectrum, the skeptics and deniers population um, are believe that global warming is not occurring, and then if it is occurring, it is absolutely not human-caused. They strongly oppose policies and actions to reduce the threat of climate change, um, and they have contacted elected representatives to argue against action on global warming. They may participate on in uh, via social media, via you know, via debates, arguing actively against climate change action. And some of you in this room might fall into that group as well. What I want you to consider is if you fall into one of these two groups on the two ends of the spectrum, is that possibly a function of your social location? Is that possibly a function of the groups that you align yourself with and that whole in-group bias, that whole in-group, out-group bias um, that the video talked about? It's important to, uh, to recognize that in the, in the, in the United States, Climate change has been politicized in a way that it hasn't across the globe. Um, so uh, one of my favorite climate scientists is a woman named Catherine Hayhoe. She's in, uh, she's at the University of, see, I'm going to this up, Texas Tech, or, yeah, tech, she's at Texas Tech, and she is evangelical Christian, and she is married to a Southern Baptist minister. Very active in her Southern Baptist church. How did that happen? <laughs> There's a great explanation. Catherine Hayhoe is actually Canadian. <laughs> and in Canada, you can be an evangelical and, and, a, and a climate scientist. You can be an evangelical and that not, even evangelical Christian, and that not pose any in-group, out-group concerns. When she was 16, 17, 18, studying at school, people in her 
her evangelical family and her church were not concerned for her soul, right? When she started studying climate science. That doesn't happen in the same way if she'd have grown up in Waco, Texas, right? So, um, so it's, it's politicized in the U.S. in a way that it's not around the globe. Um, there is this there was already a departure between uh, between Democrats and Republicans in the U.S. But when uh, can anybody think of what the moment was? What was the turning point when we saw those graphs gradually, like really rapidly change when uh, uh, Democrats became much more supportive of climate change action, much more alarmed about climate change, and when Republicans became much more skeptical of climate change and much more um, resistant to climate change action. Happened in 2006. Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth became politicized climate change in a way that it hadn't been before that. Fascinating, huh? That was only 10 years ago. No, 12 years ago, something like that. Um, what year? <laughs> okay, so um, just, so just, just throwing it out there that this idea of climate change acceptance or um, skepticism is a function of social location. And uh, so what do we do? What do we do about that? Um, here's a map of the percentage of adults who think global warming is mostly caused by human activities. Um, I point this out to show that, I mean, is that nobody's surprised by this map, right? That people generally on the coast um, have a stronger than average uh, concern or you know, a stronger than average belief about uh, that global warming is caused by human activities and people in the middle of America have a um, lower than average belief that climate change is happening. Um, I do want to point out that Nashville is barely over average. It's it's in this like 50 to 55 percent above average. So um, I know there are a lot of people who feel like Nashville is this like a lot of people over across the state who feel like Nashville is this like super liberal <laughs> center. Nationally, it's not, um, but it's all relative, right? Everything is relative to where you are sitting. Um, so this is a fun topic, and it goes back to that pain point that I made of threats being personal. Uh, happening abruptly, um, having a moral component, and happening now. And so this is, a, this is a scale. How worried should you be if you see local reporters interviewing scientists about a breaking news story by scientific field? So on the not very worried side, we have economists, archeologists, nutritionists. And on the more worried side, we have uh, an astronomer who studies the sun, a volcanologist, and a meteorologist. The important point here being local reporters, right? So the idea about local reporters having the, um, if, you're, if you're seeing local reporters interviewing a volcanologist, what's happening? <laughs> Watch out, the lava's coming your way. But if a local reporter is uh, interviewing a nutritionist, you probably don't need to change what you're doing this afternoon. 
The irony here being, which of these, which of these uh, scientists is most likely reporting information that will likely kill you? That will have the greatest likelihood of killing you? The nutritionist. Right. But when will that death occur? Will it happen today? Will it happen in five minutes? No. It will be a slow, steady decline, possibly a decade. And our brains are not made to respond to future threats. I think uh, everybody in the room think of something that you planned to do in the last month that would have been good for your health that you didn't do, that you put off. Last month. How about yesterday, right? Yeah. Um, so we all do this. This is who we are. This is how our brains are. Um, are made, and these, this is literally what kept us alive uh, in our prehistoric um, human state. Uh, it's, this whole in-group, out-group thing, I really also want to stress for a minute. So humans are social beings. We are here today in this room. You could have heard me give a very similar lecture online. You could have heard people a lot smarter than me, a lot more qualified, or uh, you know, with better credentials than I am giving a lecture about this or a similar topic online. Why are you here today? Because people need each other. We need to be in connection with each other. We need to be, we learn best together. We, uh, humans are social beings. We're social animals. And the threat of getting kicked out of your social group, the threat of going against your social group in a way that that changes people's opinion about you and who you are and if you're okay, if you're in the club, is a very real threat. And we've all been there. We've all, we've all been in a situation where we, um, we wanted to, or, you know, we, we might have thought something or believed something or wanted to wear our hair a certain way or buy a certain type of, you know, go to a, like a certain style of music. But if that wasn't what the in-group said was okay, that's a real threat. And it's how we, that's how we, have, you know, that, that is really important to our survival. Um, one of my favorite areas of study is uh, the kind of people who lead cults. And it really only happens in a couple situations. Cults are, by definition, all-encompassing, right? It's not just your family, but it's also your job and your faith and your, you know, your, your, your home and all of these things. And for people to leave that, to turn their back on everything that means safety, security, acceptance, the, the environment that they're in has to be so painful, has to be so damaging and hurtful that they're willing to risk possible, at least on a, like a like reptilian brain level, risk possible death. Social exclusion meant death in our reptilian, into our reptilian brains. So what does it take for people to do that? It takes at least too much for me to say that's what it is. So, does it make sense? If you're a person over here and your in-group says that climate change is real, climate change is happening, climate change is, um, is concerning, we have, to, we have to do something about it, how effective is it to argue facts with the people over here? Not at all. Has anybody tried it? Has anybody been in one of these groups and tried to argue with the other group? Was it fun? No, it was miserable. 
Did it work? No. no. It just, if anything, it just solidified your position in your group. If anything, it just moved you closer to the people in the group you're already in. So what do we do? How do you talk to people with whom you disagree about climate science? One trick is to start with the things that you do have in common. To always, if anything, I stopped arguing with strangers. <laughs> it's one of my like maturity in my 30s, like milestones. I stopped arguing with strangers. I only, I only have like real heart-to-heart debates with people that I know. And with people that I know in other ways, right? So people like people that I know outside of the thing that we're arguing about. Um, that we already have something in common. And so what do I do? The trick is to, or a trick, is to figure out, and this is not a trick actually. I say it's a trick, but it's actually more of a human connection. The trick is to build human connection because that's what we're wired for. We're wired for relationships, we're wired for acceptance. So start there, start with things that you like about other people, start with things that you admire about other groups. There are absolutely, I am, um, there are absolutely things that I can point out and admire about every political strike in the United States right now. I admire the Tea Party focus on freedom. I think I, I, freedom is a positive. What we mean by freedom might look different. But um, starting with things that you can admire or uh, connect on. And then starting with what is, what is personal to them? What is personal to them and what, um, where, what might hit some of their pain points about climate change? Uh, so there's a fantastic example of, uh, of a uh, congressman from South Carolina, Bob Inglis, if you haven't followed Bob Inglis' stories, so interesting. So Bob Inglis' children changed his mind about climate change when he wasn't elected, you know, elected to Congress. Um, it couldn't have come from me. I would have had no chance at changing Bob Inglis' mind, but what did his children have that I don't have? A connection, absolutely. And so his children changed his mind about, um, about climate change, and I, and he is a he's a political conservative, he's a economic conservative, he's a social conservative, and he has built a platform. He's, he lost re-election, actually. After that. Uh, but he has, he's working on a conservative climate like a conservative process to address climate change that is economically conservative that is sound that like checks all of the boxes because he actually is a real conservative and he gets audience with conservative like himself um, so the personal connection definitely worked with his kids working with him and then um, and then he saw the, the, the threat to business the threat to free markets the threat to um, economic growth and climate change poses and his other side of that. So um, how do you, so get, 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 try to figure out what those anti-climate change pain points are for people. If it's um, based on your relationship, based on what you know that they care about. And two, try to uh, 
Okay, climate change isn't in very many people's pool of worry. That pool of worry is a real thing. Um, <clears throat> we, don't, we don't have the bandwidth, we don't have the mental space to worry about everything that's possibly gonna go wrong at once. Um, so we have to choose, and we have to choose the things that are most important to us that go into that pool of worry. So if you can connect climate change as an issue to something that's already in somebody's pool of worry, you have a much better chance of public and beyond their radar. Um, and this goes the other way. If you if you are, uh, this, this, this is just a strategy for human connection, human conversation. Um, I'd like to put it out for questions. Is this a good time for that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. cool. So uh, what, what does this bring up for you? What is this, what questions do you have? So the question is, uh, you're having a conversation with someone whose assertion is that 97% agreement among climate science represents an improvement. For any climate scientist to go against that would be uh, to, would be threatening to them to get them out of that improvement and the vote. The fact that the government is funding science research with that with that agenda with that agenda with the climate change agenda. That's what y'all think. <laughs> yes. The way scientists really get any kind of fame and notoriety is actually to upset the consensus. That is, when Einstein came along with the theory of relativity, he blew up Newtonian physics. That's how you get to be famous. So it's actually, so what you're saying that is actually in the best interest of science, scientists to rock the in-group vote and uh, and make breakthroughs. That's the nature of breakthroughs is that they change conventional knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that one, one another aspect to push back against that particular claim is that uh, this is about global, this is scientists globally. So globally, there is not a, there is not a, a the globe is not politicized around climate change the way that the U.S. has become. Um, and there, I, I think that globally, science is not, doesn't have that same major bias. But that's just my idea. Yeah? I think to speaking of the funding aspects, like science isn't funded to come up with a certain answer or a certain agenda. You fund the researchers, we fund the questions. We don't fund the answer. Absolutely. So the scientific process is, by nature, skeptical. The scientific the scientific process, you get um, you get points for you get credibility for saying, "Hey, I thought I would get this one particular outcome, but I got this other thing," and that's really interesting for these other these other answers. So let's all talk about it. That's what good scientists do. That is the scientific convention. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, what we do have is a lot of uh, groups that are posing as scientific that are actually more agenda-driven. So any any uh, think tanks, any basically any, any organization that has institute in its name, except for maybe MIT. Is, is often agenda-driven, and they are not doing science themselves. They're not creating new knowledge themselves. They're not collecting data and analyzing. They're mostly just interpreting and tweaking and communicating science that was done by others. Could I go back to your last slide? 
This one? It's the one at the very top. Yeah. Data, data doesn't do it. Data doesn't do it. Well, why is that? It's because we've lost an ability to do critical thinking and analysis. Mm -hmm. If you have, data is the only answer to this. Taking, performing good experiments and having agreement on the standards of those measurements and carrying out this, uh, that's, that's the only, that's the only way to get the real answer. All this, the rest of this is kind of dodging the issue. It's, it's the data that does it. And you have to, and, you, and if you can't, can't handle that, then you've lost the ability to think about things critically. So, I, I agree that the scientific consensus is clear that critical thinking is essential for humans, but what we're talking about is that that's in that rational rider. That's what? That when, when the, in the video with the, uh, the analogy of the elephant, the emotional elephant, and the rational rider, that our one brain is actually two, an emotional brain and a um, rational brain. Data speaks to that rational rider. It does not speak to the emotional elephant. But the data is the truth. The data, the observed, the observed data, taken with measurement instruments. Sure. That's the truth. But as humans, we're not moved all the time by truth. Right. Emotion hits us first. Lot of the truth. So if we're going to get a, if we're going to get a consensus, or if we're going to get a social, if we're going to address climate change, whether or not we, you know can critically think about the science is one thing, but if we're going to address it as a planet, as a like as a uh, global community, that that takes getting at that emotional element. We are able to keep River Talks free thanks to the generosity of our supporters and sponsors. Your donations truly help us achieve our mission. We want to be sure to thank all of our individual supporters and of course our sponsors. If you would like to become a supporter of the River Talks, you can find the link in the show notes or visit cumberlandrivercompact.org. We hope you enjoyed hearing from this week's speaker. Thanks for listening. We hope to see you at our next River Talk in Nashville, Tennessee.